There we go. I would like to thank Pastor Elmore for having me here today. It's a privilege. And I would like to thank Pastor Downey and his wife, Debbie, for being very gracious and kind hosts. Um, this is, I'm not used to this. My church is online, and I have... quite a large, comparatively, community of people that I talk to sometimes every night, and I do podcasts in cutoffs and sandals and sit at my computer with three screens, and I, I don't have to look good, or, or I, I can make all the mistakes I want, and nobody's there to scold me or to laugh, so it, it's a different world, right? I'd like to talk about Paul of Tarsus. I understand that this assembly has had problems in the past with people that I like to call Paul bashers. And I believe that the Paul bashers are actually doing the work of the Jews. They're doing the work of our enemies. If you discard Paul, well, there goes Peter. And Peter's testimony, and I've demonstrated this at great length, it takes a deep reading of Peter. Reading Peter's epistles, you understand that Peter wrote his epistles to the uncircumcision where Paul founded his assemblies. Peter didn't write those two epistles to Jews. The content of the epistles proves that they were written to the people that Paul had proselytized from the pagan world, from the dispersions of Israel that happened in ancient times into Christianity. That's who Peter was writing to, and that's very clear. If Peter had written those epistles to Jews, we wouldn't have them today. They'd have destroyed them a long time ago. That's why we only have two epistles from Peter. He was writing them, it's quite clear, after Paul had been arrested, after the event of Acts chapters 20 and 21, where Paul said, he wouldn't see you again, I won't see you again. And wolves are going to come in, and infiltrators and Judaizers and spoil the assemblies. Peter was addressing those people. And, and that, it, it can't be proven, but it's proven in the context of his epistles themselves. And he was writing them to fortify everything that Paul had taught those people. When Christ chose his apostles, the first 11, I won't talk about Judas, that's in a whole different story. When Christ chose his apostles, he chose very simple, unlearned men. They were literal fishermen. He, he told them he would make them fishers of men in fulfillment of Jeremiah 16.16. 16. Behold, I will send for many fishes, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters. The pastors of today don't like to talk about the hunters. That is also a whole different topic. Those hunters are finding Israel. Those hunters are hunting them out of the holes. They shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. 
If you look at Ezekiel 34, by Ezekiel's time, 600 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem, 585 B.C., to the, to the Babylonians, the sheep had already wandered over every mountain and every hill. So we have fishers and we have hunters. Christ chose 11 fishers. Who were the hunters? The hunters are out looking for his people, for the children of Israel. In order to hunt them, you have to know where they are. You have to know where they went. The 11 fishers, they were simple rednecks. Today we would call them rednecks. They were uneducated in the universities. They had no worldly learning. They had no political agenda. In the ancient world, not only in Judea, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, but they weren't the only sects in Judea. They were the sects that predominated Jerusalem and the life around the temple. But you had Hellenists. In the book of Acts, we find Judeans that are Hellenists. They've adopted the Greek culture. And in Hellenism, we had proto-Gnostics. Proto-Gnostics, because the real people known historically as Gnostics really didn't um, become a major school of thought until the second century, but the proto-Gnostics are evident in men like Philo Judahius. And I've read Philo. Philo was a, a syncretist. He tried to synthesize Greek philosophy and Hebrew scripture. And that's a form of sophism. It, it's trying to um, correlate paganism and blend it with the, the, the truth of God. So Philo is a good example of a proto-Gnostic. There were Sophists, there were Stoics, there were Epicureans, and, and there were a lot of other philosophies of the Greek world, and they were extant throughout Judea as well. And everybody in the empire had an affinity or, or an allegiance or chose one of these philosophical cults as a lifestyle. And back then, people's religion, their belief, their religion was actually how they lived their lives. Stoics, well, one of their, um, the, the Epicureans were, were the, the party crowd, that they lived lush lives, that they believed in eat, drink, and be merry. The, the Stoics, that they were, um, that they were ascetic, that they believed that they shouldn't, they should live austere lives and never show emotion in public and, and, that they all had their, their little beliefs and they practiced them. It wasn't an hour thing on Sunday and the rest of the week we're going to do what we want because we're all the same in pop culture unless we separate ourselves from the world. And in pop culture, and they had pop culture back then too, but in pop culture we're all the same no matter who we are today and we only differentiate ourselves on Sunday for an hour. That's, but back then, they chose a, a discipline, a religion, a philosophy, and they lived it every day. And, and that's how they regulated their lives. Well, these 11 fishermen had no agenda like that. But they had no worldly learning. 
They were simple rednecks. That's how we would see them today. And what do you do with simple rednecks? They have no agenda. They're not Democrats, neocons, Republicans, liberals. You believe them. That's what made their story believable, because they were simple, hardworking fishermen. That's why. That's why when they gave their gospel accounts, they were believed, and those accounts were preserved, and they spread throughout Judea. The selection of Paul as an apostle. Paul is in the redneck. Paul's a city boy. He, he said, Paul came to you in the ancient world. You'd think he had an agenda because he's a learned man. He knew not only Hebrew learning, being raised at the feet of Gamaliel, he was from Tarsus. Tarsus was like the Hamburg or the London or the Paris of its time. There was Rome, there was Alexandria. Strabo, the geographer, 25 AD, he described Tarsus as a great center of learning. It was like a university city. There were libraries, there were museums, whatever the Greeks had equivalent to those temples all throughout Tarsus, and people from the east flocked to Tarsus, according to Strabo, to learn. So it was like going to Cambridge. Paul was raised in that environment. The Greeks and Romans had a rich library of poetry, drama, histories built over many centuries that detailed many facts and legends concerning their origins, but also they were quite imperfect. They were replete. Those books, even though they had a lot of valuable history in them, they were replete with pagan myths which outlined their own derivation from the gods, the pagan idols that their fathers had worshipped. In concert, with all of the other Greco-Roman philosophies, the original apostles had absolutely no tools of learning by which they could overcome the pagan beliefs of the Greeks. They couldn't talk to those people. You can't get a good, honest redneck into the city to talk to people that go to Columbia, professors that go to Columbia. Get the hell out of here. What do you know? They don't want to, they wouldn't even communicate with that person. And I'm sure in reality, the good, honest redneck really doesn't want to communicate with the Columbia professor anyway. The, that's the relationship that the apostles would have had to these people in Greek centers of learning, in Roman centers of learning. Totally out of place. Their story was believable to common people. Common people knew these men had no agenda. No agenda, no pet philosophy to push on people like you see today in the world all the time. 
they come to you with honest faces, they all have agendas, Jehovah's Witnesses or whoever they are. They're just trying to suck you into their world and, and their beliefs. And even in direct contradiction to the scripture. Paul of Tarsus, and, and if you want an example as an aside, a, a good example of what Paul talked about by vain genealogies is Hesiod and a poem he wrote called Theogony. Theogony is probably written about the 6th or 7th century BC when Hesiod probably wrote, it's debatable. And it's a long, intricate story about all the ancient heroes and, and the ancient heads of clans that the families were later named after. And how they derive from the union of this god and this earthly woman, or this, earth, this goddess and this earthly man. And, and if you read Theogony, and then you go read Genesis chapter 6, where it says that the angels came and went into the, the women, and, and you'll think, well, that's where the Greeks got their theology from. They got their theology from the Bible, but it was paganized. So it, it does all, there is a syncretism that belongs there, but it's not the syncretism of Philo, the philosopher. Paul of Tarsus was different from the 11 apostles in that he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, the great Hebrew teacher, but he also had a background, and he had quite a background, in the worldly learning of the Greeks. He knew all their writings. He borrowed quotations, and I found them in the New Testament. Because I've had the opportunity to read a lot of the Greek writings myself. Paul borrowed quotations from Aratus, from Euripides, from Epimenides, from Menander. Paul drew illustrations. He created illustrations based on things found in Homer, in the Iliad, and the Odyssey. And being able to do that, Paul was able to speak to Greeks and Romans with a language that they certainly understood and they could relate to and Paul could communicate with them. Paul, he used illustrations derived from Homer, from Pythagoras, Paul's, um, one, one good example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's an analogy Paul makes about the hand and the eye, and just because the hand is not the eye, it's still part of the body, and, and every part of the body put together creates the whole body, and, and the body can't function without any part correctly, so we, we all need each other. We all need all the body parts, the parts of the body of Christ. That That allegory appeared before Paul made it. It appeared in Livy, in Cicero, and in Xenophon. Three classical writers. Xenophon, 400 years before Paul, used a very similar analogy, an analogy in his book Memorabilia. Those classics you don't find that analogy in the Old Testament. 
those classics are the source of Paul's inspiration for communicating to the pagan world. The fact that the Romans and many of the Greek tribes, among, other, among the other peoples of Europe, among many of the other peoples of Europe, had their origins, they all had their origins in the East, and especially amongst the ancient Israelites. And that can be illustrated in the classics. You can open the class. You could read Strabo, Herodotus. You, you could read Homer and, and, and Hesiod. And once you understand the ancient world, you'll know that the Greeks and Romans came from the Israelites. Not all of them. Some of them were Japhethites, right? This can be illustrated in the ancient writings. It's very clear. I have papers on my website. I have papers that I've written in my books that, that more or less prove that the Greeks, the Romans, the Phoenicians all came from ancient Israel. But to make the explanations required by the worldly Greeks, to be able to convince the Greeks and the Romans requires a deep knowledge of their literature. The 11 apostles didn't have that. <laughs> they could eat, they could cast a line, they could cast a net, they, could, they, they were fishermen, right? They didn't have that worldly knowledge. They didn't have that knowledge of the classics and the scriptures necessary to bring that together. Paul alone had that knowledge. You've had trouble with Paul bashers here in this assembly. Years ago, I had trouble with Paul Bashers too. I decided to learn Greek in order to translate Paul so that I could defend Paul because I knew that there were problems in the translations just by the concordance. And the Paul Bashers, and there was a whole community of Christian identity Paul bashers and there still is I was ordained in 2000 by a Christian identity church in Michigan and and very tongue-in-cheek I excommunicated them all because they went to Paul bashing so I wrote a very tongue-in-cheek article excommunicating a whole church that ordained me because they went to Paul bashing so this has had a great impact on, on my experience with Christian identity I have a, a document on my website, 180 pages, against the Paul Bashers, because this is such a problem that they, some people, that they do it with a good heart. They think Paul's a universalist, and they know universalism is bad. But rather than investigate Paul, they just start trying to discredit and dismantle him. And that's very, very rash. That there's a reason why we have polytarsis. If we didn't, they may have heard, never heard of Jesus Christ. In order to understand Paul, it is also necessary to understand Luke. Only then does one have the entire picture. Luke was Greek. He too was an educated man. He was a physician. His writing was very eloquent. And he had 
and understanding for the importance of historiography in his work. He had an understanding for the importance of tying the records of the events of the life of Christ to historical records in his testimony concerning Christ. Luke was most likely from Antioch in Syria. He was probably found Christianity at Antioch since he makes his appearance in Scripture right after the events described in Acts chapter 15. Those events outline a dispute that Paul and Barnabas had with Judaizers in Antioch when they were all called up to go to Jerusalem to the temple to settle that dispute. That's what's described in Acts chapter 15. Luke, the author of Acts, he wrote Acts, but he didn't witness the whole thing. He begins to use the first person plural to describe the travels of Paul and his companions in Acts chapter 16. By that we know that Luke was Paul's constant companion from Acts chapter 16 all the way up until the death of Paul, a period of perhaps 15 years. Luke is in turn mentioned by Paul in his epistle to the Colossians and in his second epistle to Timothy. As Paul anticipated his earthly departure, which he writes about in 2 Timothy, and he wrote, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. That's in 2 Timothy 4.6. And then he says, only Luke is with me in 2 Timothy 4.11. While Paul never tells us exactly what his gospel was, all of the places that he visited must have heard his gospel because he made constant references to his gospel throughout his epistles. It is also evident from the histories of the recorded gospel accounts as we know them from the earliest Christian writers that out of all four gospels, the only other account that may have been available to Paul is Matthew. But Paul never once mentioned Matthew. John wasn't written yet. From all the earliest accounts that we have, the Gospel of John was not written until after his exile on Patmos and before the writing of the Revelation. The Gospel of John wasn't written until after 90 AD. Mark, Mark was not written yet. Mark wasn't written until after the death of Peter, when the Christians that Mark was preaching to coerced Mark into writing down the things Peter had told him. Mark had to be pushed into doing it according to all the early Christian accounts of the writings of, say, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr. Those people testified to those things. Matthew was probably the earliest gospel written, but Paul never mentions him. Yet Luke was Paul's constant companion right up to his death. For over 15 years, and therefore it is fully evident, as common sense would dictate, that Luke's gospel was Paul's gospel. 
Wherever Paul talked about my gospel, our gospel, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, read Luke. That's Paul's. Luke's gospel is exclusive. It's very clearly exclusive in its nature. The words of the angel to Elizabeth in Luke 1, verses 16 and 17. And this is the, my own translation of the New Testament. You'll have to excuse me for some of the different language I use. And many of the sons of Israel shall return to Yahweh their God. And he will go on before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient, that can only mean Israel, to the purpose of the just to make ready a people prepared for God. The fathers, the children, the disobedient, all of these things can only refer to the children of the ancient Israelites as we shall see here several other times in Luke. The gospel message can never be expanded to anyone outside of that context if Luke is defining it right in the first chapter. The words of the angel to Mariam, or Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. God shall give him, I'm starting in the middle of 32, God shall give to him the throne of David his father, and he shall rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. The words of Mary to Elizabeth at Luke 1, and 55. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance. Israel in Luke chapter 1, it was Israel in Jeremiah, was Israel in Ezekiel, was Israel in Kings, was Israel in Chronicles. That never changed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, Israel to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers. Luke's writing this. Luke was Greek. To Abraham and to his offspring, his seed, forever. Notable are the words of Zacharias concerning John the Baptist. And I'll start at Luke 1.68. Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old. There's no change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's crazy. That's, that's mad. That, that is madness to assert that there's any sort of change. Preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, which is given to us. Being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety, 
Israel sold themselves into sin. Now they have to be delivered from the hands of their enemies. Israel chased pagan Canaanite gods. Now they have to be delivered from those very things they sold themselves into. Being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. And now you, child, shall be called a prophet of the highest. This is of John the Baptist. For you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path, Jesus being God coming to flesh, for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their errors. It doesn't say to his people and the Gentiles. It says to his people by the dismissal of their errors. Through the affectionate mercies of our God, by whom dawn visits us from the heights to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and was strengthened in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his manifestation to Israel. These words throughout Luke chapter 1. Here's 1, 2, 3, 4 very exclusive statements concerning redemption, salvation, and mercy. These words throughout Luke chapter 1, they are Luke's historical exhibition of the very purpose of the gospel. Luke gave his precise reason for writing his gospel along with the methods that he used to construct it in the first four verses where he says, seeing that many have taken a hand to arrange a report concerning those matters fully ascertained among us, just as they who from the beginning having been eyewitnesses and attendants of the word, the people who actually knew Christ, because Luke is making secondhand accounts from a compilation of notes and, and putting it in one gospel, transmitted them to us. It seemed good also to me, having closely followed from the first in all things accurately, to write to you methodically, if Luke's writing methodically and tells us on all these occasions, defining the gospel, that this is for Israel, for the fulfillment of the promises to the children from the fathers, how, how could anybody universalize that? It's mad. It's madness. To write to you methodically, most excellent lover of God, that you may decide concerning the certainty of the accounts which you were taught. To universalize that gospel is a blatant denial of that gospel. These words, which we have seen throughout Luke chapter 1, are very exclusivist. They're absolutely exclusivist in nature. Luke's very purpose for writing his gospel is clearly manifest in them, that it was a record of the announcement of the redemption and salvation of the children of Israel by Yahweh their God and a reconciliation to him, as we have just seen in these statements which he records in his first chapter. 
While other Gospels, and they're all very valuable, while other Gospels contain messages informing us that the mission of Christ was exclusive to the people of Israel, there's no doubt they all have at least one message of that type in them. Matthew 15:24, I come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. None of them do so to the degree that Luke does. Yet for many centuries, the mainstream translators, the mainstream translators don't understand these things. For that reason, both Luke and Paul have suffered many mistranslations, and that's due to the lack of understanding of the translators. And I could argue the Greek all day long in many places. And when I translated the New Testament, I kind of got bored with Matthew and Mark because there weren't any, there was nothing groundbreaking to find where the King James really screwed up. And that's because Matthew and Mark are relatively safe for universalists. They really are. There's not a whole lot of the Great Commission in Matthew at the end of Matthew. They love to take that out of context. And they can take it out of context without Paul's explanations. And, and we'll get to that shortly where I, where I describe Romans chapter 4 and how Paul defines the faith of Abraham. Matthew and Mark are probably the New Testament the Jews would love to leave us with. They would love to see us get rid of Paul, because once we get rid of Paul, there goes Luke. And once, because Luke's Paul's companion, so if Paul's no good, Luke can't be any good. And there goes Peter. So what do we have left? Matthew, Mark, and John. And then our enemies hate John. They hate that gospel. And they'll work on that as soon as they get rid of Paul. They'll be John bashers in Christian identity. Luke's expre Luke expresses the purpose of the gospel again in the words of Simeon when the Christ child was presented by his parents in the temple. From Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. And this is a, um, a very good example of one of those mistranslations. Because in the Greek, that passage says, and this is Simeon talking about seeing the Christ child, because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, not all peoples, in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. I noted the King James Version translates Luke 2.32 as saying, a light to lighten the Gentiles. But the word which the King James translation has translated as a verb to liken, that word is really a noun. That word is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis is a noun which means an uncovering, a revelation. It is the same word which supplies the alternate name for the book of Revelation, which we also call the apocalypse. Apocalypse comes from apocalypsis. It's a noun. It's not a verb. The King James Version rendering of Luke 2.32, where it says, a light to lighten the Gentiles, uses the noun apocalypsis 
as a verb, which is both impossible and inexcusable. Rendering Luke 2.32 as a light for the revelation of the nations in honor of your people Israel is a perfectly literal translation of every word of the Greek of that passage. Therefore, it becomes evident that the gospel account would reveal both the nations of Israel and the glory or the honor of Israel. There is much corroboration for this plainly literal reading in both Paul's letters and in the Old Testament prophets. Upon the selection of Paul as an apostle, as it is related in Acts chapter 9, the following words, verses 13 through 15, Talking to Hananias, Christ is talking to Hananias, and Hananias replied, Prince, or Lord, I have heard many from many people concerning this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and thus he has authority from the high priests to bind all of those being called by your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name, and this is another one of those mistranslations, before the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. That's what the Greek says. Now I know that the King James Version has the end of that passage to say, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, comma, and the children of Israel. But that is not what the Greek infers. And there are technical reasons for that that have to do with conjunctions. The Greeks had two words that could be translated, not always, but that could be translated and in English. And those two words are kahi, K-A-I, and te, T-E. Joseph Thayer, a Judeo-Christian lexicographer. He wrote a Joseph Thayer's um, lexicon of the Greek, of the Greek Testament. He, he wrote a lexicon that was very famous from the 1800s of New Testament Greek. According to Joseph Thayer, who states that te differs from the particle kahi, the, the, the particle te which appears here, differs from the, the normal word translated and, which is kahi. Where kahi is conjunctive, a conjunction is and, it connects two nouns or two ideas, but te is adjunctive. And Thayer says that, and I quote, kahi introduces something new under the same aspect yet as an external addition in the grammatical construction of the sentence. Whereas te marks it as having an inner connection with what precedes. That's Thayer. That's his words. So if we see the nations and the kings and the sons of Israel connected with te, well, 
it's marked as having an inner connection with what precedes. And that is the conjunction which appears in the Greek of this passage. Luke, by choosing te over kahi as his conjunction, is telling us that the nations and the kings and the sons of Israel are all the same. They're all connected to each other. It's not these nations and these Jews. While it's not exactly literal, it would not do any damage to the meaning of the passage to interpret it in this manner. Both the nations of the sons of Israel and the kings of the sons of Israel. That's who Paul was to deliver the gospel to. And we see that. We see that that is the fulfillment of the promises to the Israelite patriarchs in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6. In Genesis 35 and 11, the promises to Abraham, many nations will be of you, many nations will be of your seed, kings will come out of your loins. They won't be found across the water in some faraway strange land. They'll come out of your loins. It is understandable that the nuances of Greek language and grammar are beyond the reach of many people. But they are important. The Greeks had these different words for a meaning. The Judeo-Christians can't just say, ah, that don't mean nothing. It's and. They can't do that. But they had two conjunctions, kahi and te, for a good reason. And Luke used te, and if he used te, he used it for a good reason. The nations and the kings and the sons of Israel are all the same. To mistranslate, Luke 2.32 or Acts 9.15, when we see all of those exclusivist statements in the first two chapters of Luke concerning the promises being fulfilled to Israel, to mistranslate them in order to universalize Luke, when you compare those passages to the first chapter of Luke, makes Luke to be a liar and a hypocrite. The King James translation makes Luke to be a liar and a hypocrite because they purposely mistranslated it to try to make this gospel for everybody when Luke says it's for Israel. So we can't fairly take Luke's words and twist them so that we can apply them for every, to everybody unless we make Luke a to be a liar and a hypocrite and we have Luke refute the very promises which Luke's gospel announces that God has upheld. That's absolutely hypocritical. Luke recorded the words that Christ would rule over the house of Jacob forever. No Jacob and the Gentiles. Luke recorded the words that God has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's what the word seed means. Luke recorded the words that God has visited and brought about redemption for his people. Luke recorded the words that in the fulfillment of the gospel, God's intention was to bring about mercy 
with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant. If you had to remember a covenant, you're not changing one. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. All of those Old Testament promises to Israel, Luke recorded as the very purpose of the gospel and of the coming of the Christ. Yet nowhere did Luke ever record that God's intention was to abandon Israel for Gentiles or for any non-Israelites at all. If Paul were a universalist, why would his constant companion, Luke, go out of his way in so many statements in his gospel to show that it's exclusivist and for Israel alone. They were constant companions for 15 years. Only Luke is with me, right up to his death. Why would Luke go out of his way to write these exclusivist statements if Paul were a universalist? There is no telling who Israel is in the New Testament without Paul's epistles. Without Paul's epistles, the New Testament is 100% absolutely disconnected from the people of Europe. Paul's understanding of the dispersions of Israel are readily manifest in his epistles. While James wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, while Matthew recorded the words of Christ, that he came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And while there are other exclusivist statements in John, in the Revelation, in Mark, nowhere in any of those books can we imagine by those books alone who the children of Israel are. Nowhere. Not that I've ever seen. James writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad unless we have a thorough historical understanding. And even with a thorough historical understanding of the Old Testament, it's still kind of difficult to determine exactly who those people are without Paul's epistles. It can be done, but it would be difficult. James writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Who are they? The Judeo-Christians would say, well, they're the Jews. But that's not who they are at all. We see in Luke's words that the purpose of God in Christ was to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. Luke's a Greek, he's writing this. Paul explained the faith of Abraham. He explained exactly what it was in his epistle to the Romans. No other New Testament writer has done this. You won't find it in any of the other New Testament writings. In Paul's definition of the faith of Abraham, we also see the reason for Paul's bringing the gospel to the nations of Europe. In Romans chapter 4, and I quote from verse 13, Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring. That he is to be the heir of the society, or the world in the King James Version, but through righteousness of faith, 
For if they from of the law are the heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. In other words, if those people in Judea pretending to be Israel, if they pretending to adhere to the law, if they are the heirs, we have a problem. Because the real children of Israel are not keeping the law at this time. Not at all. They're off in paganism. Paul writes, For the law results in wrath, so that where there is no law, neither is there transgression. They were put off. When they were in that put-off straight state, they couldn't be transgressing the law because they were put off. Israel, divorced from Yahweh, was freed from the law. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 7, especially once the husband died, once Christ was crucified. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all the offspring. Now, Paul teaches, and this was a big point of contention in the first century, because they thought Paul was doing away with the law. But Paul teaches in Romans chapter 3 that once we realize our redemption, we should want to establish the law of God. We should do it voluntarily. We should do that. We should start at home and do it as an example. But he says, because of mercy, do we do, we do away with the law? And he said, may it not be. Rather, we establish the law. That's in the last verses of Romans chapter 3. So Christians have mercy because the husband died, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, and that released the wife from the law. And that's why we had mercy, so that he could marry us anew. But because we're Christians and we understand our redemption, we should seek to establish the law. That was Paul's teaching, and that's what a lot of people in the first century didn't understand, even though he wrote it right out in Romans chapter 3. For if they from of the law are heirs, it's not the law that makes us heirs, is what Paul's saying. The faith has been voided, and the promise annulled. For the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, what faith? He's talking about the faith of Abraham. That in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all the offspring. Not to those of the law only, but also to those of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's talking about the Romans. He's talking about the Judeans. Just as it is, just as it is written that a father of many nations I have made you before Yahweh, and this is important to understand this, before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. And I'll talk about that momentarily. Who contrary to expectation, an expectation believed for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus, your offspring will be. And he, Romans 4.19, and he not being weak in the faith, nor having considered his own body by this time being dead, in other words, how am I going to have children? Being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, 
But at the promise of Yahweh, he did not doubt and disbelieve. Rather, he was strengthened in faith, giving honor to God. And having full satisfaction that what he has promised, he is also capable of doing. He would have offspring. That's the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. For that reason, it was also accounted to him for righteousness. Moreover, it was not written regarding him only that it was accounted to him, but also regarding us. Paul is telling us here that we should have the same faith as Abraham. Abraham's faith is that his offspring would become many nations. So therefore, we should have the faith that Abraham's offspring did become many nations, and that is us. We know where those nations are. But also regarding us to whom it is destined to be accounted, to those who believe in he who raised, Yahshua, our prince from death, who was handed over for reason of our transgressions, and raised for reason of our acquittal. It was destined to be accounted to us, and in this context that means the Judeans and the Romans, among others, because the original peoples of both of those nations were among the promised nations of Abraham's seed. There is no other way that anything at all to do with the word of God was destined to be accounted to any of them because the promise is to his offspring. Abraham, as Paul explains here, was accounted righteous because he believed God when God told him that his seed, his literal offspring, his literal children, would become many nations and would inherit the earth. And they did. The mainstream churches, they teach that somehow many nations would become Abraham's offspring. And that's how they get all these strangers into the covenants. Or they try. It is ridiculous. It is absolutely contrary to the fact that the scriptures plainly state that Abraham's seed would become many nations. The mainstream churches try to turn that promise around. They try to pervert the words of God and twist that promise around. At Romans 4.1, Paul says, Now what we may see, now what may we say, I'm sorry, that our father Abraham had found concerning the flesh. Abraham, Paul is saying here, was the forefather of the Romans as well as the Judeans. The King James Version in Romans 4.1 has only father. There are more modern translations that correct that error, but it is an error, and that's not an error in the translation. It's an error in the manuscript upon which the King James Version was based. It didn't have forefather. It only had father. Note that Paul repeats the promise to Abraham, that a father of many nations I have made you. And then Paul elaborates that God is he who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. That there Paul is saying that these nations don't exist, but he is naming them as existing because they did. The promise uttered to Abraham was not long after 2000 BC. When the promise was uttered, there were no Germanic tribes. 
There was no England. There was no Ireland. There were no Romans. There were no true Phoenicians. The Israelites, the Israelites were the real Phoenicians of the golden age of Phoenicia. That can be proven. There were no Galatians. There were no Dorian Greeks. There were no Danan Greeks in 2000 BC. All those nations that became the nations of Europe at the time of Christ did not exist in 2000 BC. There were other Adamic, our cousins, Genesis 10 people. Some of them might be some of our ancestors. There's nothing wrong with that. Occupying parts of Europe, parts of Africa, parts of Mesopotamia, parts of the Levant or, or the Middle East. They were white. By Abraham's time, they occupied certain areas of Europe and the Mediterranean coast for many centuries. But these were not the recipients of the promises of God, among which was the promise that Abraham's seed would inherit the world. It can be proven through ancient history that the children of Israel were indeed the ancestors of many of the dominant tribes of Europe and the Near East. That is why Paul and the other apostles went to Europe. That is why Paul told the Romans, he told the Corinthians, he told the Galatians, he told the Illyrians, even though we don't have an epistle to the Illyrians, and he told the other tribes, wherever he established Christian assemblies, that they were indeed among the children of Israel being reconciled to Yahweh their God. The classics, and he used the term reconciled in many of his epistles. The classics and our modern, modern archaeology prove this. And so do the prophets. And Paul was fully aware of it, but he needed that education in both the classics and the prophets. It is ridiculous for Paul to repeat all of these messages concerning those Old Testament promises to the Romans if they were not applicable to the Romans. However, it was indeed applicable to the Romans. Paul was the first... Christian identity teacher after Jesus Christ. In Paul's epistle to the Romans, from Romans 1, chapter 20, he stated that mainly the unseen things of his, meaning God, from the creation of the order or world, are clearly observed, being understood in the things made, both of his eternal power and divinity. For this, they are inexcusable. Now this is important. Because Paul's writing to pagan Romans, and it's very clear. Because knowing God, they thought of him not as God, nor were they thankful. But they became foolish in their reasonings and were darkened. Their hearts voided of understanding. Alleging to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the estimation of the incorruptible God. This can't be describing Jews. They changed the estimation of the incorruptible God into a resemblance of an image of corruptible man and birds and four-legged animals and reptiles, on which account God hands them over to the uncleanness and the passions of their hearts, their bodies to be dishonored among themselves. There was a lot of sexual deviancy in first century Rome. Everyone who creates, I'm sorry, everyone who exchanges the truth of God with falsehoods. Saying this to pagan Romans, that's what they must have done. Paul knew 
that those pagan Romans, and it was many generations ago, were the children of Israel. And they were. Everyone who exchanges the truth of God with falsehoods and reverences and serves the creation rather than the creator who is praised for the ages, truly. Paul could only have said these things about Israelites as the Old Testament attests. This is the story of the Old Testament. Only Israel ever had the truth of God. Only Israel ever had his judgments and his statutes. Amos 3.2 the words of Yahweh our God, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, talking to Israel. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. He doesn't know anybody else but Israel. And Israel, in Rome, Israel, one of those dispersions of the ancient Israelites were the Trojans, and the Romans were descended from the Trojans. Paul had to know that. Psalm 147. Paul stating here in Romans chapter 1 that the Romans had the law and they changed it. That they perverted it. Psalm 147. He shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. I'm sure Paul knew Psalm 147. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. In fact, Paul explains to the Romans in chapter 2 of his epistle to them that they indeed fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah concerning Israel. That the law was written in their hearts. In reference to the Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, in part, I'll read from um, the middle of verse 13, not the hearers of the law are just before Yahweh, but the performers of the law are to be considered just. For when the nations, the nations of dispersed Israel, the nations descended from Abraham's seed, when the nations which do not have the law, and they didn't because they were put off from God, by nature practiced the things of the law, these not having law, themselves are a law, who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts, bearing witness with their conscience. The Trojan, Zara Judah, and that's a little bold statement, but I can make it, the Trojan, Zara Judah, ancestors of the Romans, and many Dan and Greeks, who were of the tribe of Dan, there was a tribe in Greek called the Danae, and the tribe of Dan in Hebrew is called the Dani, slight difference in language. Many of the Trojan Romans and the Dan and Greeks and elements of the other tribes had departed Egypt before the Exodus. Therefore, they never received the law at Mount Sinai. They didn't have it. And they knew not the prophets. Romans 2.12 says that those outside the law, and this is another misunderstanding in the King James Version, those outside the law shall be cleansed. It does not say they shall perish. It's translator confusion over the root of a verb. The verb can, can be legitimately the form of either one of two verbs. 
Apolumi, which means to destroy, and Apoluo, which means to cleanse. The translators didn't make a technical mistake when they said perish in the King James, but concerning the context of the scripture, they simply chose the wrong verb, because that form of the verb in that passage can belong to Apolumi or Apoluo, and one means to wash away in a cleansing sense, and one means to remove in a destructive sense. So it's just simply translator confusion over what Paul meant when he used that verb in that statement. So Romans 2.12, and, and I would assert it from the context of Scripture, says that those outside the law, because he's talking only to Israelites, shall be cleansed. The story, of, the story of the Old Testament was that Yahweh put all Israel away for punishment. When he did that, they were outside the law. They weren't keeping it anymore. They were lawless. They were outlaws. But the promises throughout the prophets was to cleanse them of all their sins. That's what Paul's hearkening to in Romans 2.12. Surely the Romans would wonder about this. And here Paul alleviates any concern for the Romans, which they may have had over this passage, over this idea of judgment under the law. Since the Romans were still Israelites, even if they never received the law and the prophets because their ancestors departed from Egypt, they were still the seed of Israel. They were still the seed of Abraham. They were still included in the promise. Isaiah 45:20. all the seed of the sons of Israel shall be saved. In context at Romans chapter 2, Paul means those Israelites outside of the law and no one else. We can't imagine that he meant other people outside of the law since Christ came to redeem those under the law, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3. So he's not saying something different in Romans chapter 2. We have to take that in context with his direct statement in Galatians chapter 3. We can't imagine that Christ is trying to cleanse those outside of the law, meaning aliens and, and foreigners and people of other races. If Christ came to redeem those who were under the law, the law was only given to the children of Israel. In this passage, Paul is explaining the fulfillment of the prophecy of the new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31. Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 2 that they have, by nature, practiced the things of the law. And then they, not having law, themselves are a law who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts. Paul is telling them that they're fulfilling Jeremiah chapter 31. We find the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31 in the Roman people. The Roman people lived in a society, it wasn't a perfect law, but they lived in a society based on the rule of law. The Roman nation had grown from ancient Israel, 
but never had the law or the prophets, yet it showed the works of the law by forming a society based on the rule of law and on fairness among men, even if it wasn't God's perfect law. That's what Paul is exhibiting to the Romans, that they fulfilled chapter 31 of Jeremiah, where it says that God would create a new covenant with us. He promised that new covenant and told us he would write his law in our hearts. That's what Paul's referring to in Romans chapter 2. So the Romans must be Israel. Paul's being a Christian identity pastor. Corinthians. It is of Corinth that Yahweh told Paul, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, from the King James Version, I'll read it. Then spake the Lord to Paul, in night, in the night by a vision, be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. God was not talking about Jews. It was the Jews who were the people who were harassing Paul. Paul had reason to fear the Jews. They were the ones after him. God said, I don't fear. I have many people in this city. He wasn't talking about Jews. We see in the very next passage in that chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 18, <laughs> that the Jews dragged Paul before Galleon, the proconsul of Achaia, in order to file accusations against him. That's exactly what God was talking about. He had many people in the city, don't worry about it. In the next chapter, they're dragging him before the authorities. And of course, the Jews expected to use Galleon just like they used Pilate against Christ, but Galleon drove them away from the judgment seat, fulfilling that word, fulfilling the word of Paul, not to see her. Galleon wasn't a Jew. He was a Roman. Paul explains to the Corinthians that they were indeed descended from the people of the Exodus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Corinthians, the Aryan Greeks, the Spartans were Dorians, the Corinthians were Dorians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, and 7 and 8. Now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all had passed through the cloud and through the sea, and all up to Moses had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea. Then in verse 7 he warns them, Neither become idolaters, just as some of them, as it is written, the people were seated to eat and to drink, then rose up to play. Neither should we commit fornication, just as some of them had committed fornication. And in one day, 23,000 had fallen. Here, Paul is clearly telling the Corinthians that their ancestors were Israelites, and that their ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus. Many so-called pastors love to point out the discrepancy here. 
to the event that Paul is referring to. Because Paul says that the number of dead were 23,000. But if we go back to Numbers chapters 24, 25, and 26, and the event Paul is referring to, we'll see that the Old Testament, in all versions, says that 24,000 people had died. The event Paul's referring to is the event, the race-mixing event, in Numbers chapters 24 and 25, between the sons of Israel and the daughters of Moab. Paul is calling that fornication. In the Old Testament, adultery is race-mixing. The Greeks had a different idea of what adultery was. Adultery to the Greeks was any simple confusion of the seed line. So if somebody of the same race slept with a man's wife and had a child, that's adultery to the Greeks because it mixes, it confuses the seed line. But it wasn't race mixing. So because of the different way in which the Hebrews and the Greeks perceived the meaning of the word which we see translated as adultery, the apostles in Acts chapter 15 told Paul and Barnabas to have the Christians not eat things strangled to idols and not commit, or, or not eat things strangled, not eat things worshiped, you know, worshiping idols, and not commit fornication. They added the commandment about fornication because the Greeks understood fornication as race mixing. Fornication was a lot, described a lot of forms of illicit sex among the Greeks, but race mixing was one of those forms. So fornication in the New Testament is race mixing. Adultery is just confusion of the seed line with anybody, with your own brother and sister, with somebody that you know and your wife. It's any form of confusion of the seed line. That's very misunderstood. In, even in Christian identity circles, those definitions in the New Testament of adultery and fornication because people don't understand the cultural differences amongst the Greeks and the Hebrews, which were extant in the first century. You have to understand the culture to understand its language. So in, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery means thou shalt not race mix. In the Old Testament, because that's the Hebrew perception of that word. And then we have the commandment not to covet your neighbor's wife. When the Septuagint translators read in the Hebrew, thou shalt not commit adultery, they used a good word that means to mix when they translated that into Greek. They did use a good word, and the apostles followed after them with that word. But to the Greeks at large, it just meant to any confusion of, of the, the, the family lines and not necessarily race mixing. So the apostles added the commandment about fornication. Paul's telling the Corinthians not to race mix when he tells them not to commit fornication and they, as those people in the Exodus did, and in one day 23,000 had fallen. He's telling the Corinthian Greeks not to race mix when he tells them not to commit fornication and refers back to that race mixing event. These pastors, today's pastors will say, oh, Paul has 23,000 there, but I know it says 24,000 in numbers, as if Paul's made a horrendous mistake. And they fail to see 
They point this mistake out and they fail to see the commandments about race mixing and they fail to see that the Corinthians have to be Israelites. They miss all the major points of scripture to point out these petty little discrepancies that mean nothing. Paul is telling the Corinthians, not the race mix, Paul is telling the Corinthians they are Israelites. Their ancestors were in the Exodus. All historians, and I mean mainstream historians out there in the world, all historians would tell you that the Corinthians are Greeks, and that the Greeks of that time were Aryans or Indo-Europeans. So they couldn't have been Hebrews. But if we accept those terms of the Corinthians, then according to Paul, the Hebrews of the Old Testament must have been Aryans, and they must have been Indo-Europeans. The pastors will never admit that. They avoid 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They avoid discussions of it like the plague. But there's a second witness to Paul. There's a very clear second witness to Paul, right from the writings of the Jews if I have to use that term, right from the writings that they like to claim as their own, Josephus was not a Jew. Josephus the historian is a second witness to the fact that the Corinthians, who were Dorian Greeks by race, that's their tribe, Corinth was only their city, that they descended from the Israelites. It would be my contention that the Dorians, as a people, came out of Dor, in Palestine. Dor is a large city in Palestine on the coast of the land of Manasseh. There were many ancient Greek artifacts which had been found at Dor in Palestine by archaeologists. These artifacts show a Greek, as the, the, the Jews and academics would claim, a Greek presence at Dor as early as the 7th century BC. Now that's only the archaeological findings. There was certainly, the 7th century BC is much earlier than the Hellenistic period where the Greeks started moving into Palestine in the 3rd century BC. The 7th century BC is the time of the last recorded Assyrian activities in Israel for which we can see Ezra 4.2, or it mentions Esar Hadan, an Assyrian king in Israel in 681 B.C. And the last deportations of the Israelites, which happened around that time. There is also archaeological evidence that the Israelite priests were active in Dor. There were all sorts of boy little seals with the names and images used by Israelite priests found in Dor. If the Dorians migrated from Palestine rather than from the north, as all the historians in the mainstream world claim, then Crete would be a logical stopping place for the Dorians en route to Europe from Palestine. Homer, Homer the ancient Greek poet, in book 19 of the Iliad, Homer described the entire ancient world and all of the historians and geographers who followed him considered Homer the authority on the tribes and peoples of the ancient Greek world. Everybody they knew. And Homer talked about Dorians and said, writing of 
a period right around 1100 BC that they were on Crete. He didn't mention them anywhere else. He never mentioned Dorians in Europe. He never mentioned Dorians in Greek. He only mentioned Dorians on Crete, the island at the bottom of the Aegean Sea, sitting there in the Mediterranean, that's halfway between Palestine and the Peloponnesus, halfway between Palestine and Greece. We see the proofs of this in a letter which was written by a Spartan king. The Spartans, Sparta was another city in the Peloponnesus, which is that large landmass that's almost an island. It's connected to southern Greece by a little thin strip of land to the mainland. Corinth sat at the beginning of that little thin strip of land in the northern part of the Peloponnesus. Sparta was at the bottom of it in a land called Lacedaemonia, or in some, by, in, in some circles, Lacedaemonia, but the sea should be hard. Here's a letter recorded in Josephus' Antiquities in Book 12. It was written by a Lacedaemonian king, a Lacedaemonian king, a, the king of Sparta, about 160 BC, and it was written to Onias, the high priest at Jerusalem. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, sendeth greeting. We have met with a certain writing, whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of one stock and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. That's a Spartan king writing to the high priest in Jerusalem. He goes on. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concerns as you please. This is a letter of fellowship. We will also do the same thing, and esteem your concerns as our own, and will look upon our concerns as in common with yours. I won't finish the letter. The letter is um, it's answered, and its answer is recorded in Josephus, and its answer is recorded in 1 Maccabees in the Apocrypha. Right after this letter was written and received at Jerusalem, that's when the Seleucids came and invaded Jerusalem and defiled the temple. So the letter wasn't answered for quite a few years. And when the letter was finally answered, the, the, the new high priest had actually apologized for its not being answered in a timely manner because of the problems they had with the Greeks in Syria, known as the Seleucids, who... who came and invaded, and that they defeated the Seleucids, and that started what we know as the kingdom of the Maccabees. That's when it began. Paul knew that the Corinthians were Israel. And in his epistles, he treated them as Israel being reconciled to God. We see corroboration of Paul in this letter, which Josephus records. Luke's gospel announced 
Israel's reconciliation to God. Luke's Gospel announced the fulfillment of those promises which God made in the Old Testament. Now the Corinthians, Paul tells them that their ancestors were in the Exodus, that they were at Mount Sinai. They had the law. They had the prophets. Their ancestors did. They didn't keep them, but they had them. And it's important to understand a culture. You don't have to have written laws. You have to have customs, and your customs get passed down to your children. And if your customs are just and godly, your children will receive just and godly customs from you. And they pass them down to their children and to their children. And you could have a civil society and a godly society without having written laws. Abraham was chosen in the first place. Why? Because he kept God's statutes and judgments. Well, where, the, where were they written? They weren't. They were in here. Therefore, Paul never told the Corinthians that they were wild olives. He told them they were at Mount Sinai, their ancestors. He told the Romans that they were wild olives, and they were being grafted into a cultivated olive tree. The cultivated olive tree, Paul told the Galatians, the Galatians were Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. He told the Galatians that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. That's because the Galatians' ancestors had been under the law. But Paul told the Romans that they were wild olives because they never had the law. Because their ancestors, even though they built a society based on the rule of law, because they had it written in their hearts, they didn't have the cultivation of generations of their ancestors having lived under the laws and the prophets. That's why he told the Romans that they were wild olives. They didn't have that cultivation. Paul told the Romans that they were wild olives being grafted back in and that the natural branches were being broken off. And, and that's a question for a lot of people because they imagine that the Jews are natural branches and they're being broken off the tree. But that's not what Paul is saying in context in Romans. Paul starts a narrative in Romans chapter 9 and he contrasts in that narrative Jacob and Esau. Paul starts by saying he only has concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he contrasts Jacob and Esau. And many of the real true Judah in Judea followed along with Esau. They were the branches being broken off for their disbelief. Now if they didn't follow Esau, if they didn't follow the Edomites, we would not have had reconciliation because Christ wouldn't have died on the cross. And they did follow the Edomites. And because they followed the Edomites, the Edomite high priests were able to kill Christ. If they hadn't gone along with it, the Edomite high priests wouldn't have been able to do it. And Paul's telling them that they can be grafted back in if they accept the gospel of Christ. 
but he's only talking about the real Israelites in Judea. He's not talking about the Edomites. They were never part of the tree in the first place. But that's why he makes that wild olive analogy. The Corinthians were not wild olives like the Romans because their ancestors had lived many centuries with the law and the prophets under the Sinai Covenant, actually about four centuries, before they departed the ancient city of Dor and sailed to Greece. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul explains his ministry in this manner. And I'll start with verse 18. But all things from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. He's talking to Corinthians. He's talking about reconciliation. And is giving the service of reconciliation to us. He's talking about the purpose for his mission. How that God was within Christ reconciling the society to himself, the Israelites of the world. Not accounting their offenses to them. He has to be talking to Israelites because they're the only ones under the law. All these things have to be taken in context. And placing in us the word of that reconciliation. Therefore, on behalf of Christ, we serve as ambassadors, as God is exhorting through us. We ask on behalf of Christ, you be reconciled to God. Because the Corinthians were Israelites who left 1,100 years before Christ was born. For he who knew not sin, on our behalf it caused sin, in order that we would come into the righteousness of God with him. Paul's entire ministry, he defines it here, was about that reconciliation of dispersed Israel to Yahweh, their old covenant God. Paul was teaching Christian identity. He was the first Christian identity minister. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he also identifies the other nations of Europe as Israel as well. Indeed, the nations were sacrificing to idols, and they were lost Israelites who adopted paganism centuries before. He explains that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 through 20. He says, and this is important, Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, which I translate more literally, behold, Israel, down through the flesh. That's what the word means. That's what kata means, down, basically, or down through. If you're talking about a country and the cities, and you say kata throughout the cities, throughout the country. But if you're talking about a race, kata means down through the generations of that race. Paul's saying, behold, Israel, we'll use the King James translation, according to the flesh, are, those, are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar. How many Jews were in Corinth in the pagan temples sacrificing to the pagan gods? Not too many. They were Israelites in Corinth sacrificing in the pagan temples to the pagan gods. They were Israelites throughout the Europe, all of Europe sacrificing in pagan temples, worshiping pagan gods, just like the Old Testament said they were. Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar? What then do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol 
meaning an idol itself, is anything. Rather, that whatever the nation sacrificed, he's not talking about Jews, he's talking about Israel according to the flesh. Whatever the nation sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. Paul is proving the dispersions of Israel. He's proving that in this message. The first century Jews were not ever sacrificing to animals, animals to pagan idols. But Paul isn't talking about Jews. He's talking about Israel according to the flesh. That's his way of saying real genetic Israel. Look at real genetic Israel. Not these imposters practicing the law. The, the, the heirs aren't reckoned by the law. The heirs are reckoned by the promise, the promise to Abraham. that his offspring would become many nations. That's what Paul's teaching. He's going to those nations. He's talking about reconciliation. I don't know how any Paul basher could miss that, unless they have, they're, they're more blinded by the Jews than the Judeo-Christians. The Galatians. The Galatians were named after the Greek word for the Cimmerian Scythians of Europe, the Greeks started calling them Galatahi about the 4th century B.C. They didn't call them Galatahi before the 4th century B.C., not that I've ever read. In the 4th century B.C., the Greeks started calling all of the, what we know as the Germanic people in the Gauls of France by the name Galatahi. Even though Galatia, that Paul wrote to, was a specific district in Anatolia. Anatolia is modern-day Turkey. The Greeks at this time continued to use the term Scythian of the Germanic or Indo-European tribes that were further east in Asia, but they started calling all the Scythians of Europe Galatahi. The Galatians were descended from the Israelites, who were among the first to be deported by the Assyrians and who, after conquering much of Anatolia, the Galatians, the Cimmerians passed through Anatolia, conquered ancient Phrygia, and went into Europe. And then 400 years later, they decided to come back. They wanted loot. They wanted, they wanted loot in, in human and in metallic form. They were defeated by the king of Pergamus in a battle, but it was not a decisive defeat. So the king of Pergamus made a deal with them and gave them the ancient land of Phrygia that their very ancestors had destroyed 400 years before that. So it's pretty ironic. That's an irony of history. Now, the Galatians were destroyed in the ten by the 10th century AD. The Galatians were gone. They were destroyed. They were destroyed by the invading Turks and the Arabs. And today, with, that they, they make up the mongrel races of Turkey. And, and that's unfortunate, of course, but it's also a matter of Yahweh's will. But in Paul's time, the Galatians were descendants of the Scythians. They were pure in blood. They were pure in race. And they had began to intermingle and adopt Greek customs and the Greek language and even intermarry with some of the Greeks. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 14 <clears throat> Just as Abraham had trusted Yahweh and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul is making another appeal to that very same promise that God made to Abraham. That his seed would become many nations. That's how Abraham trusted Yahweh. 
as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. Then you know that they from faith, they from the faith, those Israelite nations, that seed of Abraham from the faith, that they are the sons of Abraham. And the writing, having foreseen this from faith, Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, meaning the nations that descended from Abraham. That's what Paul explained of these very same promises in Romans chapter 4. All these things have to be read in context. Announce to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So those from of the faith are blessed along with the believing Abraham. From what faith? From the faith of Abraham that Paul defined in Romans chapter 4, that those nations would descend from his offspring. Paul says, For as many as are from rituals of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed are all who do not stand fast in the writings within the book of the law to do them. Well, what writing was in the book of the law? The writings in the book of the law was that Yahweh was going to make a new covenant with Israel and write the law in their hearts. So the rituals, even though the law written in our hearts are the same moral laws of God which we see in the Old Testament, the rituals were done away with because Christ was the last ritual. He was the last sacrifice. And Paul is saying that justification no longer comes through those rituals, which the Jews insisted that they and we all, the Judaizers, and they did, insist that we all keep. And that in the law no one is deemed righteous before God is clear, because the just shall live by faith. Now the law is not from faith, but he who practices these things shall have life by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming accursed on our behalf. For it is written, a curse is everyone who hangs upon a tree. In order that the blessing of Abraham would come through the nations. Paul defined these nations in Romans chapter 4, talking about the faith of Abraham. That they were the nations from Abraham's seed. In order that the blessing from Abraham of Abraham would come to the nations at the hand of Christ Joshua, that we should receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul's talking to those who were redeemed from the curse of the law. He's only talking to Israelites. He's not talking to anybody else. He's explaining to them the purposes of the promise of Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, He's explaining to them the history of the Old Testament, the purpose of God in the Old Testament. He's talking to Israel, and he's reconciling them to God. How is Paul a universalist? We have previously seen that the faith of Abraham was his belief in the promise of God that his offspring would indeed become many nations and inherit the earth which is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 4. Only Israel was redeemed from the law, since only Israel was ever given the law. Psalm 147, he shows his word under Jacob, his statutes and his judgments under Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. How could anybody say that this is universalist? It's, it's mad. It's, it's a denial of the scripture. They hold the Bible and they deny the scripture. Can Paul be blamed if the Universalist misused Paul's message? Can Paul be blamed 
if some of its passages are purposely mistranslated. Because universalist translators don't understand them. So they write what they want. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, properly translated, reveals that Paul is very exclusive to Israel in his interpretation of the New Covenant once we understand the context of what he's saying. He's saying, brethren, I speak as befits a man, even a validated covenant of man, no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many. And Paul is saying that because, as he explains in Romans chapter 9, the Edomites are in Jerusalem. That's what he explains in Romans chapter 9. But they are vessels of destruction and not vessels of mercy. The Israelites are vessels of mercy. Why would Paul be comparing Jacob and Esau if Jerusalem wasn't filled with Edomites? Jerusalem was filled with Edomites. We see it very clearly in the history of Josephus. We see it attested in the Revelation. Those who claim to be Judah but are not, but are of the synagogue of the adversary, the synagogue of Satan. Esau was the adversary because he went and race mixed. He went and mixed his seed with the Canaanites and the Ishmaelites and did everything his father didn't want him to do. He became, his descendants were Satan. They were a part of that, the collective enemies of God. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed. I understand the King James has Christ there, because they try to make one man the heir of all the promises. Well, if God's the heir of his own promises, what's the point? Paul says later on in Galatians, he uses several times in Hebrews the word heir in the plural. If he's using the word heir in the plural, then we have to read Galatians 15, not to say Christ, but to say anointed, because the Apostle John talks about the anointing we have received as Christians. And we, being the children of Jacob, we are the heirs. Now I say this, a covenant validated beforehand by God, which the law, arriving after 430 years, does not invalidate. The law is not invalidating the promises to Abraham, by which the promise is left idle. For if from law, the inheritance is no longer from a promise, but to Abraham, God gave it freely to those nations of Abraham's seed. Those Edomites can practice the law all they want, but they're excluded. That's what Paul's saying here, because it doesn't say to offsprings, it says, and to your offspring. Paul is making an allegorical, a, a literary device to create an allegory, because Paul is telling us that the children of Ishmael, the children of Keturah, the children of Esau, they're not part of the covenants. Only the children of Jacob have these promises. And that actually is explained in, in Genesis chapter 27. Where Isaac, after Esau race mixes, Isaac tells Jacob that the promises would fall to him if he obeyed him and got a, life from among, a wife from among his kin. 
at verses 21 through 31 of Galatians chapter 4, Paul explains that Hagar and her children are still excluded from the covenants of God. And so it is evident that nothing has changed since the days of the Genesis account. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 28, that we, brethren, down through Isaac, are the children of promise. Paul agrees with and teaches from history that the Galatians are the physical children of Israel. At Galatians 4.29, Paul further explains, but just as that at that time, he who was born according to the flesh had persecuted him according to the spirit, so also now. Now Esau took the wife of Canaanites, uh, two wives of Canaanites, but he took one wife of the daughters of Ishmael. And if you inspect the Old Testament prophecy, the Edomites and the Ishmaelites were mingled from the very days that Esau settled in Mount Seir. And the Ishmaelites are mentioned many times as being in the same land as the Edomites. They mingled together from the time that Esau took a wife of the daughters of Ishmael. The, a lot of people don't realize this, even in identity, but the fate of the children of Ishmael are tied to the fate of the children of Esau. There's no doubt. There's no doubt reading the Old Testament, reading the prophets, and, and examining. And, and Nobody pays much attention to Ishmael, to his children when they're listed, after the Genesis account. But they're mentioned very often in the prophets and the cities they inhabited. And they are tied, their fate, to the children of Esau. Paul here is excluding, he excluded the Edomites in Romans 9. There's no room for universalism there. He excludes the Edomites and the Ishmaelites here in Galatians chapter 4. Here Paul is explaining to the Galatians in Galatians 3.15 and forward that only Abraham's seed through the anointed line, the line of Jacob, are accepted into the covenant and that Abraham's other children are excluded. While Christ is the anointed one, all of Israel is the anointed of God. Even the Apostle John speaks of that anointing which we have received in 1 John in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 2, verse 27. He mentions that anointing explicitly. Paul here explicitly explains the exclusion of the Ishmaelites in Galatians chapter 4. And he, ex he had already explained in Romans chapter 9 he the exclusion of the Edomites. Now Ishmael. Ishmael was circumcised by Abraham himself in Genesis chapter 17. And here Paul is telling us that Ishmael is being excluded from all the covenants. You can't take an Ishmaelite, an Arab, and make him a Christian. You can't do it. Paul's excluding them. Because Paul knows that these promises are only to Jacob. If Paul is telling us that Ishmaelites are excluded, how could anybody think that Paul would include a Negro or a Chinaman or an Indian? That's mad. Paul tells the Galatians 4.28, We brethren down through Isaac are the children of the promise. That's why he told them that they were under the law and being redeemed and reconciled. Paul tells the Galatians at 4.29 that the children of the flesh 
persecuted the children of the Spirit, and Paul told these Galatians that it was going on in his day. These Jews, these people that were harassing Paul, these people that were harassing Christians, that were getting the Romans to persecute the Christians, Tertullian, in 180 AD, wrote. He was the Bishop of Carthage, in, in northern Africa, which was at that time a Roman city, he wrote that the Jews were behind all the Roman persecutions of Christians. The Jews are the world's greatest agitators. They do it to this very day. They were doing it then. They're the children of the flesh, persecuting the children of the spirits. Minucius Felix was another early Christian writer who wrote basically the same thing. Christians to this very day are persecuted by those without the Spirit. At Galatians 4.30, Paul says, What does the writing say? Cast out the servant woman and her son, for by no means may the son of the servant woman inherit along with the son of the free. That casting out of Hagar and the Ishmaelites in the book of Genesis is held up in Paul in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, in its entirety, is a lesson about Israel identity. Paul is telling these Scythian people that they are the children of Abraham. We see in history, and it can be shown in ancient inscriptions, that the Scythians, the Galatians, are indeed descendants of the Israelites of the Assyrian dispersions. There's a whole body of evidence of this in ancient Greek writing, and in Assyrian inscriptions that weren't dug out of the ground, that weren't properly understood until after 1850. The church wouldn't want to change its mind in 1850. The church was so settled in its doctrines, they could never change their mind based on archaeological evidence in the 19th century. They've never even examined any of that evidence. They don't even care who true Israel is because they think that they replaced Israel somehow. They teach this replacement theology that does not stand up in Scripture. So why should they investigate these archaeological findings? Here are verses 1 through 6 of Galatians chapter 4. And Paul's talking to and about the Galatians. Now I say, for as long a time as the heir is an infant, meaning the early centuries, of Israel's existence. He differs not at all from a bondman or a slave, being master of all. In other words, the heir is master of all, but in his childhood he's only, he differs not at all in his position in the household from a slave. But he is subject to guardians and stewards until a time appointed by the father. Just as we also, and he's talking about himself, and he's talking about Galatians. When we were infants, we were held under the, subject under the elements of the society. And when the fulfillment of that time had come, God had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. I know the word is adoption in the King James Bible, but it doesn't mean adoption in Greek. The word huiothesia. Thesia 
is a plaything. Huios is a son. Now, you can place a son for adoption, but that's only one way to place a son. The Greeks used huiosesia to describe the placing of a son, whether it be for adoption or whether it be as an heir. Either way. There's a Greek word that means adoption, literally. That word is eispoiesis. It doesn't appear in the Bible. It doesn't appear in the New Testament anywhere. All the pagan Greeks, all the pagan Roman writers, the secular writers, use the word eispoiesis. Eispoiesis means a making into. That is adoption. When you make somebody into a son, but that's not the word Paul used. Paul used the word huiosesia. Huiosesia simply means a placing of a son. Now it's true, a poor man in ancient Greece can use the word huiosesia to describe the placing of a son for adoption. Yes, that's true. But it doesn't describe the act of adoption. The act of adoption, when it happens, is called eispoiesis. The placing of a son can also be into his position as an heir. The Christian placing is our placing as heirs when we rec recognize our reconciliation and accept the gospel of Christ. That's when we get the huiofessia, the placing of sons. That's what the word describes. That whole meaning is lost in the mistranslations and misunderstandings of the King James translators. In his epistles to the Corinthians, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now working together, we also exhort you not to accept the favor of God to no purpose, that favor, that mercy granted to Israel. For he says, in an acceptable time I have listened to you, and in a day of deliverance I have come to help you. Behold, the present time is well acceptable. Behold, the present day is of deliverance. We see that quote in Corinthians. But how many people go back to Isaiah to see what Isaiah was actually talking about and what Paul was saying in relation to the Corinthians? In order to understand what Paul is saying in reference to the Corinthians, we should go back and read that passage. Isaiah 49, verses 6 through 10. And he said, It is a like thing that thou should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. and to restore the preserved of Israel. That's Paul's message. That's Isaiah's message. Paul is fulfilling Isaiah's message. That's all he's doing. He's going since he is so well versed in the classics and in the prophets and knows the history of the dispersions of Israel. He's well qualified to take this and make it happen. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation under the ends of the earth. 
What do we see in Luke? A light to lighten the nations? Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, meaning Israel. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee. He's talking to Israel. Paul is hearkening to this. Paul is appealing to this very passage and its fulfillment in the Corinthians. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritage, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, the prisoners are Israelites in captivity. They were called prisoners from the time that they were taken away by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastors shall be in all the high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that has mercy on them shall lead them. Christ. Christ gave us mercy. Christ be our leader. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. Paul has been accused of universalism by men who profess to know the Christian-Israelite identity message. That's incredible to me. How can one read Galatians chapter 3 and 4? How can somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Or 2 Corinthians chapter 6? While claiming to know the historic truths found in the Israelite identity message. And still maintain that Paul is a universalist. I don't get it. Have these people read Paul? Have these people actually read Paul? Or do they only take for granted as true the lies of those who claim? And they claim it all the time. Oh, Paul changed that. As if Paul could even change the word of God. Which never changes. Anyone in Christian Israel identity who faults Paul for universalism is only a follower of the perverts who have obscured and distorted the word of God from the beginning. They've married themselves to the enemies of God. Paul was the glue that bound the gospel of Jesus Christ to the dispersion of true Israel, the white nations of Christendom. Even if the later churches never did view or interpret the writings of Paul correctly, that's not Paul's fault. Paul taught Israel identity. It can be established that Paul taught two seed line identity. Without Paul's work, and, and that's from Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul, writing to the Romans about 48 AD, some people date the epistle a little later, he tells them that God shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. 
That's a direct reference to Genesis 3.15, and he's talking about the Edomites in Jerusalem. They collectively, they're not all of Satan, but they're a good part of Satan, the adversaries of God. Satan collectively is the adversaries of God. Satan in the New Testament, sometimes the word is used to Peter, get behind me Satan, because Peter was being adversarial to him when he told him what was going to happen. That doesn't make Peter the Satan. The Satan collectively in the New Testament are all of those mixed races and those people that descended from the Kenites, the Rephaim, the Edomites, the Canaanites. They collectively are Satan in the New Testament. They are the devil. And the proof is all throughout history. Without Paul's work in establishing Christian assemblies in Europe, the few epistles which we have from the other apostles would probably have fallen into obscurity many centuries ago. If indeed they would have even survived the attacks of the Jews at all. That's why we don't have any epistles of James but one. And what one do we have? The one to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Christians preserved that epistle. Do you think James only wrote one epistle? I don't think so. He sat in Jerusalem in prayer for 20 years until they killed him. 30 years, actually. In all probability, not even the Gospels would have survived. Outside of the will of Yahweh, of course, that would be impossible if he willed them to survive. He willed them to survive, and he affected that will of the world in the world through Paul of Tarsus. Because without Paul, I can't imagine us having any of that, any Christianity whatsoever. We'd still be pagans wearing horns on our heads and drinking mead and doing all the silly things pagans do. We may never have heard of Christ. If we had heard of Christ, as the Jews would so desire, we would have heard of him as some upstart leader of just another curious Jewish cult. The Jews, discrediting Paul today, are making that very claim now in reference to Christ, that he was just the upstart leader of some obscure cult in Judea. By this we know that Paul was indeed a vessel chosen by God himself to assure that his word would reach the dispersed of Israel. Paul did not invent a new religion. Paul helped to ensure that true Israel would return to their old religion. Already by Paul's time, the white world had become dominated by the Romans, the Greeks, and the Scythians. Now, when I say Scythians, I include the Galatians, because they descended from the Scythians, and I include the Parthians. And even Josephus, and his history talks about the relationships between the Israelites and the Parthians. All of those people were descended from the Israelites of the various dispersions. These are the only people Paul ever mentions in connection with the covenants of Yahweh. He doesn't mention anybody else in connection. There's no epistle of Paul to the Hutus. There's no letter to the Egyptians. There's no epistle to the Arabs. If Paul wanted to destroy Christianity, 
he could have very easily snuck in a few epistles to the Tootsies and, and, and the squat monsters of the Congo. It wouldn't have been a big problem for him just to hammer out a couple of those, but there are none. Nobody's ever made a claim that there were any. We only see the epistles of Paul. Even the perverts who would destroy Christianity, having, I shouldn't give them the idea, right? Having come up with an epistle of Paul to, to the Negroes yet, to the Nubians, or to the, the Indians, or, or to the yellow people in Eastern Asia. And the Greeks knew about those people. The Greeks knew about all of those people. The classics write about those people. Those people were never part of the Greek world. They were never part of the oikumene. They were never part of the society, the cosmos, which is the word usually translated world. They were never a part of that world. They can never be included in any of this. The critics of Paul all follow the Jews. Whether they're in Christian identity or not, they're following the Jews. Thank you for listening to me. And praise Christ.